Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Southern to Far West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Tanzania's ruling party retains power after hotly contested elections. AU report reveals shocking abuses in South Sudan and UN welcomes the release of kidnapped civilians in Nigeria. In economics, Moody's lowers MTN rating outlook to negative and in sports news, South African Springboks to play their last World Cup match today. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Tanzania's National Electoral Commission will hand over certificate to Dr. John Makafuli of the ruling CCM party, declaring him the duly elected president of Tanzania. This follows the East African country's just ended elections. Makafuli, who is Tanzania's fifth president since independence, won the hotly contested polls with 58% of the polls cast. Sirakimani reports. According to a program from the Commission, the elaborate ceremony will begin at 7 in the morning. It will include the handing in of a certificate and speeches by the incoming president, Dr. Magufuli, as well as the outgoing head of state, Jakaya Kikwete. Kikwete has been in power for 10 years. He retires next month after serving his constitutional two-term mandate. The handing of the election certificate is symbolic and does not replace the swearing-in ceremony slated for next month. Magufuli will be accompanied to the ceremony by his deputy, Salima Suluhu Hassan. Hassan becomes Tanzania's first female vice president. Meanwhile, foreign embassies in Tanzania have expressed concern after the island of Zanzibar annulled polls over irregularities. Zanzibar's Electoral Commission says the vote on the Indian Ocean Island must be carried out again, citing violations of electoral law. Opposition parties have also alleged rigging in Sunday's presidential, general and local elections, seen as the hardest-fought polls in the East African nation. Rebels in South Sudan have abducted 12 United Nations contractors operating a barge carrying fuel, weapons and equipment for international peacekeepers. The UN says the incident happened in the town of Kaka in the northeastern province of the Upper Nile. The world bodies demanding the immediate release of the national contractors unharmed and unhurt, adding that attacks against peacekeepers may constitute a war crime. In a similar incident on Monday, 100 heavily armed rebels kidnapped 20 peacekeepers 
when they captured the barge traveling on the Nile north of Malakau. The peacekeepers were, however, released later. At least 15 people have died and scores are missing following five Incidents this week involving smugglers' boats carrying refugees and migrants to Europe. The most serious incident involved a wooden boat with at least 300 passengers, which sank off the Greek island on Wednesday evening. More than 240 people were rescued and authorities confirmed seven deaths. Several children between three months and ten years old were hospitalized for hypothermia. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, says worsening weather required and urgent scale-up in search and rescue efforts at sea. And finally, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says it's important for government to make free education a reality. He says he's happy the recent university fees protests have led to everyone getting on the same page regarding the ruling ANC's policy of free education. He says he's he's sympathetic to the plight of poor students. President Zuma says the task team he established three weeks ago after meeting with university vice-chancellors will be strengthened. I'm now thinking of further reconstructing or composing what I have asked to be a task team. I am wanted to elevate it into a commission so that all these issues will be part of the issues that will be taken in the process. That process must tell us how far can we go to implement the free education. What, are the, what will be the time frames? What would be the cost? Because now it's no longer the question of accepting the policy. It's a question of implementing the policy when everybody agrees. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tanzania's ruling party candidate John Magufuli has been declared winner of the presidential election after garnering 8.8 million votes against his main opponent, Dr. Edward Lowassa, who managed only 6 million votes. Magufuli with 58% of the total votes cast, will now become Tanzania's fifth president, succeeding Jakaya Kikwete, who retires after 10 years in office. The opposition has rejected the results, alleging massive rigging. Sarah Kimani has more. It's been four days of waiting, four tense days after intense campaigns in one of Tanzania's most hotly contested polls. Thursday, the wait came to an end. Damien Lubuva, the chairman of the National Electoral Commission, making the announcement in the commercial capital, Dar es Salaam. Just now we have announced the results of who has been appointed duly as president of the United Republic. That is Dr. John Magufuli and uh, the running mate Samia Suluhu Hassan as vice President. Magufuli had won more than 8.8 million of the total votes cast, that is 58%. His closest rival, Edward Lowassa, had 6 million votes, that is 39%. Lowassa rejected the vote, saying his own party tally gave him victory with 62% of the total votes cast. We feel 
The Electoral Commission is not running these affairs properly. The Electoral Commission denies. We have been doing it in terms, strictly in terms of the law and the constitution. We are satisfied beyond shred of doubt that what we are doing here is constitutionally valid. According to the country's electoral laws, the winner must gain a simple majority of the vote. On the streets of Dar es Salaam, there was heavy security presence. Armed police and military officers patrolled the streets. Business is back to normal. Opinion on the polls divided. Uh, I think his election is not fair in Tanzania because uh, all the people, uh, there are someone who like to vote, but uh, the government is not. For me, it's a good choice because uh, Dr. Magufuli has a long way back. We know his capacity in working. He went through different uh, ministry and position in the government and wherever he take a position, he did very well. And most of Tanzanians, we hope he can take us from here to the upper level. Thank you very much. The ruling party welcomed the declaration of Magufuli as winner, promising to honor the party's election pledges. January Makamba is a spokesperson for Chama Chama Pinduzi, CCM. No, we're very excited, uh, but we know that uh, this is a debt uh, that Tanzanians have entrusted us again uh, with this responsibility to lead them in the next five years. Meanwhile, foreign embassies have raised concern over the annulment of Zanzibar polls, warning that it might spark tensions on the islands. Magufuli's win will extend Chama Chama Pindu's 54-year rule in East Africa's second largest economy. Sarah Kimani, Tanzania. The African Union has released a report on the inquiry on South Sudan. The report has openly blamed both the South Sudan government and the rebel faction for violating the rights of their citizens. The report was the work of a commission of inquiry commissioned by the African Union in March 2014, led by former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. Following the eruption of an internal conflict in South Sudan in December 2013, the African Union formed a commission of inquiry to investigate the human rights violations in the country. The commission, led by former president of Nigeria, Olusegun Obasanjo, produced a report that was presented to the African Union summit in January 2015, but was deferred by the Peace and Security Commission and shelved in the office of the African Union chairperson. The report was later to be reviewed by the African Union Peace and Security Council in September this year and has now been released to the public. According to this inquiry report on South Sudan, there are reports of people being burnt in places of worship and hospitals, mass burials, women of all ages raped, both elderly and young, women describing how they were brutally gang-raped and left unconscious and bleeding. It also says how during the two years of war, people were not simply shot. They were subjected, for instance, to beatings before being compelled to jump into a lead fire. The commission of inquiry heard of some captured people being forced to eat human flesh or being forced to drink human blood. It blames this on both the government and the rebel factions of South Sudan. Hallelujah Luli is a researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He says the government and the rebel factions of South Sudan should not refute the findings. I don't think they have a ground uh, to reject the report. They have to accept, the, I mean, they may have reservations on some sections, but they have to accept the comprehensive spirit, the comprehensive objective of uh, the report and the recommendations. 
they won't be left with any other option. The AU South Sudan inquiry report criticizes the fact that the South Sudan president has excessive power that enables him to remove some state officials often without proper controls, and this, it says, is a cause of instability. It also criticizes the poor management of the military and police forces in the country and highlights the clear ethnicity divide over the years that has made it easy for the current conflict to thrive. The AU report has found out that the current conflict in South Sudan is primarily as a result of power struggle within the ruling SPLM party of South Sudan, which began many years ago and was just triggered into an armed conflict by other factors like ethnicity that the parties are now using as a scapegoat. Sande Okelo, a professor at the Institute of Peace and Security Studies in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, says that this report is timely since it fully complements the August 2015 peace agreement that the parties signed and they are now striving to implement where some issues were not given emphasis. If we look at the content of the report itself, there are so many recommendations that go beyond what they're discussing at the IGAD Plus. Some of the discussion that had been done with the IGAD Plus dropped certain issues, for example, transitional justice and accountability and formal and informal structures of reconciliation in the country probably has not been exhaustively being discussed at the IGAD, although it emerged. But this report also clearly recommends these structures. So I think that the report plus the IGAD plus the discussion and comprehensive agreement can work together. The inquiry on South Sudan report relates the current ongoing conflict in the country to a build-up tension in the weak governance of President Salva Kiir's leadership. It also links it to the fact that the government has over time failed to provide basic needs to its people as a result of issues like low literacy levels, low skills and low levels of economic development. Mismanagement of the military and police forces in South Sudan has also been undermined as a major cause of poor performance of the state in South Sudan. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa rising through innovative technologies to improve the quality of life of its people. 
From the 29th of November to the 3rd of December 2015, South Africa's City of Gold, Johannesburg, will host the 7th AfroCities Summit. Delegates will have an opportunity to reflect on the challenges that local governments and partner states are faced with, the state of affairs and what steps have been taken to ensure that the objective to build a network of smart cities is realized. Channel Africa will be there bringing you live coverage. The AfroCity Summit is an engagement for Africa's local government authorities, which is organized every three years by the United Cities and Local Governments of Africa, UCLG Africa. This year's edition will be held under the theme, Shaping the Future of Africa with the People. The contribution of African local authorities to Agenda 2063 of the African Union. Smart cities will be one of the subjects explored during the five-day summit. So, join Channel Africa between the 29th of November and the 3rd of December for coverage of AfroCities 2015. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The UN Security Council has expressed deep concerns about the security situation and the persisting political impasse in Burundi, marked by lack of dialogue among Burundian stakeholders. The Council, backed by the African Union decision to investigate human rights abuses in Burundi and said it was ready to take action over the continuing violence in that country. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. In the statement released on this Wednesday, October 28th, the Security Council has expressed its deep concern about the growing insecurity and the continued rise in violence in Burundi, as well as the persistence of the political deadlock in the country as dialogue among Burundian stakeholders has talked. The UN body says to have taken note of the recent communique and its next steps adopted by the Peace and Security Council of the African Union on October 17, 2015, to address the current crisis in Burundi. From the statement, the Security Council says to be deeply concerned about the increased cases of human rights violations and abuses. Further, the Council has strongly condemned all human rights violations and acts of unlawful violence committed both by security forces, militias and other illegal armed groups. For the Security Council, the situation prevailing in Burundi has the potential to seriously undermine the significant gains achieved through the Arusha Agreement. It has recalled the importance of respecting the country's constitution as well as the Arusha Peace and Reconciliation Agreement of August 2000. The Council has urged all stakeholders to reject armed rebellion and engage in dialogue, emphasizing on the importance of the mediation efforts led by Ugandan President Yuri Museveni on behalf of the East African community as endorsed by the African Union. The Security Council has backed the initiative of convening an inter-Burundian dialogue in coordination with the government and all concerned stakeholders, both who are in Burundi and those outside the country, in order to find a consensual and nationally owned solution to the current crisis. Though the government of Burundi and the ruling CNDFTD party remain hostile, the Security Council welcomes the decision by the EU Peace and Security Council to increase the number of African Union human rights observers and military experts deployed by the African Union in the country. The Security Council backs the decision of the African Union to impose targeted sanctions against all Burundian figures whose actions and statements contribute to the perpetuation of violence. In the meantime, the government of Burundi and the CNDDFTD ruling party expressed their shock 
following the African Union Peace and Security Council statement of October 17, 2015, whose content has been fully backed by the UN Security Council. For the government of Burundi, the decisions constitute a violation of the rights of Burundian people and a breach on the sovereignty of the country. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. The release of civilians in Nigeria who had been kidnapped by the Boko Haram terrorist group had been, has been welcomed by the UN. Nigerian troops rescued 338 people, mostly women and children, who were reportedly being held in the northeast of the West African country. The release of civilians in Nigeria who had been kidnapped by a Boko Haram terrorist group has been welcomed by the UN. The UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, is providing support. The agency's representative, Adun Porter, explains. We're very pleased um, by the rescuing by the Nigerian military of these civilians, mostly girls and uh, children and women, This is part of a series of attacks by the Nigerian armed forces on bases that have been held by Boko Haram. And very often during these attacks that have been going on for the past several months, the military is finding civilians who've been held captive by Boko Haram. What is UNICEF's role in these liberations? We don't have a direct role in the liberation. Those are as a result of military actions by the government. However, once the civilians, mostly children and women, have been rescued by the government, we are working with the government and calling on them to process them as quickly as possible. The government screens them, understandably, to make sure that there are not Boko Haram activists among them. But we do call on the the government to remember that these are mostly civilians and we ask that they process them, screen them as quickly as they can and bearing in mind all their human rights so that they can be released as quickly as possible. Once they're released, they go to camps for the displaced in the northeast and there UNICEF and our partners, including the Nigerian government, are able to have access to them where we, we are able to give them the support that they need. You say this is one of the liberations amongst many. What state do these rescued women and children arrive in and what support does UNICEF provide? These mostly children and women arrive generally in terrible condition. They've been kept for some time. It varies the amount of time they've been kept, but really under terrible conditions. Children in particular are malnourished, extremely weak, but also also the women. Most of the women and girls have been raped, some of them are pregnant, some of them have been infected with HIV. They are really in dreadful, dreadful, dreadful conditions and, of course, traumatized by their experience. UNICEF and our partners were able to get them most urgently health care, basic health care. Some of them have been injured also, in, um, especially in the fighting around their liberation from, from Boko Haram. So most urgently, they're getting health care and nutrition support for um, children in particular suffer very badly and very quickly from from malnutrition. We're also getting, as far as we can, psychosocial support for them, and this obviously is very needed. They, They have been terribly traumatized. 
And that was Dune Porter, representative of the United Nations Children's Fund in Abuja, Nigeria, speaking to UN Radio's Christina Silviero. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. Today we ask you, South Africa's ruling ANC wants the Joint Ethics Committee in Parliament to investigate opposition leader DA leader Musi Maimani and ten, 10 other DA MPs who were contesting the party's federal leadership elections in May this year. The ANC says Parliament's register of members' interests reveals that none of them disclosed the financial donations they received to the run-up of their campaigns. Now, our question to you today is, do you think political parties should be forced to play open cards and reveal their sources of private funding? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Do you think political parties should be forced to play open cards and reveal their sources of private funding? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today in 2006. Former South African President P.W. Bota dies peacefully at the age of 90 at his house, the Anchor near Wilderness in the Western Cape Province. That was today in history in the year 2006. Africa, rise and shine. The International Organization for Migration, IOM, says the continued friction between host communities and migrants in South Africa reinforces the need for a revaluation of the effectiveness of migration policies in the country. Police in Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape Province were taken by surprise last week by a sudden outbreak of violence against foreign nationals. Hundreds of their homes and shops were looted and damaged, leaving many of them displaced. For more on this, Jen Matabula spoke to IOM's Chief of Mission in South Africa, Richard Otts. I think there's continued friction between the host communities and the migrant communities. And I think by and large, to a certain extent, it is based on a number of misperceptions. And the most important one of those is that migrants come to the country to steal jobs and to steal jobs in a market that is already heavily taxed. The unemployment rate in South Africa is high at close to 25%, I think. And the perception exists that a few jobs that are still available are taken by migrants. I think it is important to correct these misperceptions because it's exactly what they are. To a certain extent, yes, migrants 
Africans do fill positions that would otherwise be taken by South Africans. But if you look at the positions that most of the migrants are filling, it is actually not jobs that many South Africans are willing to take. But secondly, and more importantly, we've done studies on the, the kind of jobs that, that uh, migrant workers are filling in South Africa, and we find that the, the rate of entrepreneurship among migrants is twice as high as it is among South Africans. So among South Africans, it is typically 6% of the working population that are entrepreneurs. Among migrants, it is about 12%, which means that these migrants actively contribute to job creation. In many cases, these migrant entrepreneurs, they employ four or five South African workers So they actively contribute to job creation in the country. And I think this is something that needs to go out and people need to be aware of. Now, you've just touched on my next question because in light of these recurring attacks on foreign nationals, we've been constantly asking, how do we deal with this continued friction between host communities and migrants in South Africa? Yeah, indeed. I think part of it is an information campaign, is making people aware, making people aware that in many cases the perceptions that a lot of people have are not based on facts. They're based on on myths. And there's a lot of myths going around. I mean, there's the perception that migrants tend to be criminals, that they bring diseases. That I mean, there's all kinds of, of ugly stories going around about migrants. But if you look at it, migrants are typically young. They're typically relatively healthy. And they are, and we've done studies on this, typically relatively better educated than the host population. And if you look at it, it actually makes sense. If you are someone who is very old or very sickly, would you leave your country to explore opportunities in another country? I think you typically wouldn't. It is typically the young people that are frustrated by the lack of opportunities in their own country that seek opportunities abroad. And if you're not in good health, you're not in a position to pursue these opportunities. The problem in South Africa is not, however, unique, and it's increasingly becoming clear that it's a global phenomenon. As we see with the Europe situation, your thoughts around that? Absolutely, yes. Migration is on the rise worldwide. If you look at the number of migrants, international migrants, that is, it currently stands at about 250 million And just by way of comparison, in in the 1960s, that was 80 million. So in, in just a couple of decades, the number has quadrupled and it continues to rise. If you add to that the number of domestic migrants, so people who move within their own country to another province or from the, from the rural areas to the urban areas, the number of domestic migrants or internal migrants worldwide is about 750 million. So it's huge. The number of migrants, mankind is on the move, <laughs> and it always has been on the move. So we see the issues at the moment in, in Europe, and obviously it's very challenging. Europe also has its fair, more than fair share of, of issues to deal with with the influx of migrants, and it certainly is threatening the internal cohesion, it is threatening the solidarity between the countries and the whole concept of free movement within the continent. So it is something that it's not unique to South Africa, it is not unique to Europe, it's a phenomenon that we see around the world. That was Richard Oth, Chief of Mission for the International Organization for Migration in South Africa, speaking to Jay Matebula. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Unidentified warplanes have reportedly carried out air strikes on Libya's third city, targeting areas controlled by the Islamic State militants in the south and west. John Makafuli of the ruling Chama Chama Pinduzi party and winner of the October 25th presidential election is to officially be presented with a victory certificate. And Lesotho's opposition members of parliament expected to boycott parliament's first sitting since July to demand the return of the exiled leaders. 
Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. India has announced over $560 million for development projects in Africa and offered to train the continent's 50,000 young people in the next five years. India is on a charm offensive competing for Africa's mineral resources with front runners like China, which has already rolled out infrastructure projects across the continent. The country hosted over 40 African leaders yesterday, including President Jacob Zuma and Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, for the third India-Africa summit in New Delhi. Ndebo Mugobo reports from New Delhi. Although India's trade with Africa has more than doubled to over $70 billion since 2007, it is still comparatively small to China with a total volume of over $220 billion. This summit is being seen as an attempt by India to play catch-up even as the Forum on China-Africa cooperation is scheduled to take place in December. The relation seems mutually beneficial as India is interested in Africa's natural resources, while African countries want to benefit from Indian expertise in high-tech sectors such as IT and mobile phones. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has made a raft of pledges. We will help connect Africa from Cairo to Cape Town, from Maracas to Mombasa. India will offer concessional credits of 10 billion US dollars over the next five years. We will also offer a grant assistance of 600 million US dollars. This will include an India-Africa Development Fund of 100 million US dollars, an India-Africa Health Fund of 10 million US dollars. It will also include 50,000 scholarships in India over the next five years. AU Chairperson and Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is determined that there is follow-through on these promises, saying realistic goals must be set out. Having said this, I would like to underline the need for a robust evaluation and follow-up mechanism to ensure the effective implementation of projects and programs agreed to between us. Let us give ourselves realistic targets. Let us be courageous enough to point out lack of progress where it exists in order to speed up the meeting of our intended goals. Chairperson of the AU Commission, Dr. Nkosa Sanatlamini Zuma, on the other hand, was gracious to the host, thanking the Indian government for its support to the continent. She has encouraged both sides to invest in their people. I would like to thank the government of India for the bilateral support it has provided to African member states in various domains. We would also like to encourage both Africa and India to build a strong people-to-people relationship through tourism and through exchange of our rich cultural heritage. The people-people relationship is very important. Governments come and go, the people remain. And for his part, President Jacob Zuma says relations between India and Africa should benefit both sides, especially the poor and the marginalized. It is imperative that collaboration at the continental level be mutually beneficial and take into account the integration agenda of Africa. Those who suffer from poverty in Africa and in India often are women and youth. To address this issue, it is pleasing to note that 
one focus of the partnership will be on the skilling of the marginalized youth and women. Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir has also addressed the gathering. This is Bashir's first visit to this Asian country since his indictment by the International Criminal Court for War Crimes and Genocide in 2003. India is not a signatory to the Rome Statute and has ignored calls to arrest President Bashir. I am Debu Mokobo, New Delhi in India. The fight against tuberculosis is paying off with this year's death rate nearly half of what it was in 1990. Nevertheless, 1.5 million people died from TB in 2014. Most of these deaths could have been prevented, according to World Health Organization's Global Tuberculosis Report 2015. The annual report was released this week in Washington. For more on the report, Elizabeth Ledicha spoke to Rose Ewing, program manager at South African-based Donald Woods Foundation. You know, it's now saying that TB now rivals HIV as the leading infectious killer globally. And this is a situation that has existed in South Africa for some time, is that it's been the number one killer in South Africa. Now it seems that it, as far as infectious diseases are concerned, is now a greater killer than HIV. I believe that the report has now raised concerns of a double threat of TB and diabetes. How serious is this threat? Well, you know, in South Africa up until now, what's been driving our TB epidemic is HIV because in 2012, 74% of TB patients were also found to be HIV positive. Our epidemic has been driven by HIV, although, of course, TB was around before. But what they have found globally is that that having diabetes triples the risk of getting TB. So, you know, you have somebody who might be HIV negative but is diabetic and doesn't know that they are diabetic, and then they could also be susceptible to TB, or even if they do know that they're diabetic and they're on the medication it can impact the way that the medication for their TB works as well. You know, there are drug interactions. So, first of all, that person who's got diabetes needs to be tested for TB, and somebody who's got TB also needs to be tested for diabetes. If there is a co-infection, then they will be, obviously, on the two different types of medication. But the nasty part is that the drugs interact, so it makes it a bit more difficult to cure somebody of their TB if they already are diabetic. Do you think that most healthcare systems are prepared to deal with this threat? I don't think that any health system in the world is making progress very quickly with this. And this is what, you know, going to this Bali conference next week, and, um, you know, that's what they've said, is that as a global health community, we're not progressing quickly enough. Everybody needs to do more work around this. And I don't know of any government that's got comorbidity data where they can give you statistics on how many diabetics have got TB and how many TB patients have have got diabetes because that bi-directional screening has not been done and bi-directional just means that if a person's got TB you screen them for diabetes and if they've got diabetes you, you screen them for TB. There's no country in the world as far as I know that is doing like regular bi-directional screening. It's really an urgent thing that everybody, all of the countries need to do in order to improve their case finding. But I understand that not all is doom and gloom and that advances have been made since 1990 in the fight against TB. What can we attribute this progress to? 
Well, you know, I think that, number one, there's probably more awareness. Number two, people are much more attuned into these things. We've got community health workers on the ground that are providing awareness. People have got access to social media. So I think that there, people have become much, much more aware of these things. The difficulty lies in the fact that we now have drug-resistant TB strains because of many years ago people not sticking to their medication, not adhering to their medication. They are not as easily cured as the ordinary TB, the drug-susceptible TB. Tell us about the Bali conference that is taking place next week. What are its aims and objectives? The Indonesian government is hosting the, the summit, and this is going to be the world's first international summit on TB and diabetes. You know, it's a very positive sign. The conference is taking place next Monday and Tuesday, It's going to be attended by the leading international researchers, business and technology leaders, and civil society advocates from every continent in the world. And it's an initiative of the Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease and the World Diabetes Foundation. And it's specifically concentrating on the the nasty relationship and the epidemic between diabetes and TB. And how optimistic are you about the summit in as far as averting this health crisis? Do you hope that you'll gain some lessons there? Yes. You know, I'm going to be on one of the panels where we're going to be talking about, you know, blueprints for action. And I think what they're aiming at is to come up with a declaration. They're going to call the Bali Declaration. And that will be concentrating on three broad areas. The one area will be collaboration, obviously, across country and across continent. And then the second part of the declaration is to improve the case detection or the case finding significantly. And that's really where the strength is probably going to be in countries' programs, is if they can get that right. Because with both illnesses, obviously, the earlier the person gets checked, the diabetes and the TB, the greater their chances of... A, surviving it, and B, with TB being cured. And then the third item is also to look at a way of managing the two illnesses in a way while doing research in a way that one can see how the one, to stop them from feeding off of one another because that's what they do. It doesn't only make it easier to get TB if you've got diabetes, but it actually makes it more difficult to be cured of the TB if you've got diabetes. And the medication for TB can actually make people more susceptible to diabetes. So they really are an nasty pest. That was Rose Ewing, Program Manager at the Donald Woods Foundation in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Forty more bird species worldwide are now classified as having a higher risk of extinction in the 2015 red list of threatened species. Besides the vultures, these include many wading shorebirds and other iconic species like helmeted hornbill, swift parrot, Atlantic puffin and European turtle dove. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke, spoke to Chris Bowden, co-chair of the Vulture Specialist Group of the International Union for 
conservation on nature. It's 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa. So, yes, globally, vultures are in big trouble. But in Africa, the situation has accelerated and deteriorated most quickly and most recently, I think. So, I mean, I'm actually directly responsible for for coordinating work across Asia, where we've had a very serious problem with four of the species here and probably more. But now we're realizing that Africa is similarly problematic, although the reasons are slightly different in each case. How different are the situations of the conditions of the species in Africa and other areas of the globe? Yes, sure. So in one way or another, it's mainly poisoning that's causing the problem, but it's different causes of poisoning. So in South Asia, where I'm based, the main problem is a veterinary drug, which is used on cattle, which is causing secondary poisoning to the birds by accident. In North America, you've got condors, which are in very serious trouble or the California condor because of lead poisoning, and that's in their food source, dead deer and in particular that have been shot, and the carcass still contains enough lead to poison the condors. But in Africa, it's more complicated than in either of those cases. We've got people poisoning large carnivores, such as large cats, dogs, feral dogs, and other things, and accidentally the poison killing the vultures, so vultures find the carcass that's targeting other species. But then, so that's one reason in Africa, and a very important one, but it's more complex in that there are more people killing vultures deliberately in Africa because of either use for medicinal use of vulture body parts, and we think that's a particular problem in West Africa, but reaching a lot of Africa. And more recently, some of the poachers are targeting and deliberately poisoning vultures to prevent the vultures showing where their illegal activities are being going on. So three main causes that we believe are the main drivers of the declines. But one of the problems in Africa is that the information and the data on for big areas is rather scarce. So we can't say what the main cause is quite as categorically as we can in other parts of the world. And so it needs more research as well as preventing those specific reasons that I've just outlined. How is the species adapting to this process of global warming? Global warming, we don't have direct evidence of global warming causing a particular effect for. And that was Chris Bowden, co-chair of the Vulture Specialist Group of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics update up next with Wesani Matebula.
Good morning. Thanks, Lulu. International ratings agency Moody's has adjusted the outlook on MTN to negative, citing the potential impact of a fine by the Nigerian telecoms regulator on the mobile operator's finances. Shares in MTN have dropped 19% this week. This after the Nigerian Communications Commission imposed the penalty for failing to disconnect users with unregistered SIM cards. Nigeria is MTN's largest market and accounts for around a third of its revenue. Meanwhile, MTN Group's license renewal in Nigeria could face uncertainty if Africa's biggest wireless company doesn't pay a 5.2 billion US dollar fine for failing to disconnect customers with unregistered SIM cards. MTN shares fell about 19% this week on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Nigeria is MTN's biggest market where it has more than 62 million customers. Its current license expires next year. The India-Africa summit has ended in the Indian capital, New Delhi, with the adoption of a framework for strategic cooperation. More than 40 African leaders attended the meeting, during which India pledged more than $5 billion US dollars to Africa's development drive. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi says the relationship between his country and Africa will be transparent and mutually beneficial. We will take into account your special circumstances and we will ensure even greater speed and transparency in their utilization. As always, we will be guided by your priorities. We will give high priority to increase trade and investment flows between India and Africa. We will make our trade more balanced. We will facilitate Africa's access to the Indian market. We will ensure full and effective implementation of the duty-free excesses extended to 34 countries. The American Chamber of Commerce has told the South African government in a blunt message that it's becoming more difficult to persuade U.S. companies to invest in the country. This in reaction. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown told the chamber that the, the private sector had an important role to play in energy generation. Brown says government should partner with uh, the chamber so that the state and the private sector can share ideas on policy issues. Some policy decisions that are taken have unintended consequences. And if we were to talk to the issues at the beginning, we wouldn't have that problem. But if we the problem arises, then we must deal with it. I mean, I know some of those issues in energy. And so Minister Jumak Peterson and I have to speak about how we unblock the um, policy uncertainties. Pan-African lender EcoBank has suspended plans to sell shares to raise capital for its Nigerian unit because uh, market sentiment is weak and loan growth in Africa's biggest economy is slow. In July, EcoBank obtained board approval to raise fresh funds to help strengthen the capital base of its Nigerian unit. This as the country's banks prepare to adopt stricter international capital requirements. The Lagos-listed uh, bank's business has since deteriorated as the Nigerian economy continues to be hit by weak oil prices. Nigeria contributes 42% 
13% of the group's revenues. Let's look now at your financial indicators. The dollar at 13.77 South African rands at 10.45 Botswana Pula and 12.56 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.65 against the British pound and 0.91 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,152, platinum $993, a fine ounce Brent crude oil at $48.79 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. And uh, Wisani just told me to say, Habashwe. Go Boka. <laughs> In a sports update, South African wheelchair basketball Amawila's captain, Cecil Diamond, says he's not entirely satisfied with how the team prepared for the Algiers games. For the past two weeks, Amawila boys have been playing a series against themselves. The team was divided into the green and gold due to the lack of competition in the SADC and have left for Algeria, the host of the African qualifiers for the 2016 Rio Paralympics. Um, I don't think we have prepared enough. Um, we haven't had any really good opposition to us this year and last year. We had one this year and last year one. Um, but the camps was really nice. Um, thanks to WBSA and Cecil that made it possible for us to have all these camps. Um, I think we prepared enough for, for our sake. It's now all prepared. Uh, it's all that uh, it hangs all, all off for what we're going to do there. Meanwhile, Diamond is aware of the pressure that lies ahead in Algiers, especially against the host team, Algeria, who is ranked number one in Africa. And he says it's possible that they can repeat what they did to them in Angola two years ago. We've done it in, in, in Angola. They were the top-ranked team there also. Uh, we were underdogs. We should, uh, at that time, we, that's two years back, um, we were ranked six in Africa. And we went with this team without Richard Donkia. That's one of the senior players that only came, came back last year. And they, we lost in the final by six points without him. So uh, I think we can, we can take them. In rugby news, retiring Springbok lock Victor Medfield has reflected on the high and low points of his international career that has spent for almost 15 years. In his last appearance in green and gold, Medfield will lead the box when they take on Argentina in World Cup third sport playoff in London tonight. He says when he came out of retirement in 2014, his aim was to serve South Africa in any capacity. Um, like I said, uh, if I make the World Cup team, firstly I'll be, that will say well done. It's maybe good in, uh, it was worth coming back. And then secondly, if we could win it, it would just be unbelievable. And I also said, doesn't matter what my role will be, it's in the team, maybe helping a guy like Lewis and Peter Steff develop as well. Um, I knew my role could be any of those. But uh South Africa take on Angola in the next coming qualifiers for the World Cup 2018. And after a poor start in the African Nations Cup 2017 qualifiers, Mashaba knows that they can't afford to slip up next month. 
all the games that we have played to us it's history like i normally say to people you know history helps us a lot for they say a nation without history shall perish it is good to sit down and refer back and say we played so and so and this is what happened but we don't want to take that to the next game and say yeah We've done it and we can do it now. Like I indicated earlier on, yesterday, today, and tomorrow will never be the same. If we have won yesterday, it's not an automatic or a given that we will win the next coming games. We've got to go out there and fight, more so when we play a team like uh, Angola. The last time we beat them, uh, you could have seen they were not happy. They were very uh, uncomfortable with the lose. They said, no, there is always next time we will get you. Even when we played, went to play Chan. Some of their officials were saying, this is the time we're going to repay. So it's going to be a, a very, very tough game that uh, we will need boys with strong character when we get there. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unare. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Tanzania's ruling party retains power after hotly contested elections. Concerns over the security situation in Burundi and the UN welcomes the release of kidnapped civilians in Nigeria. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today and for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Mario's Choice. Who's supposed to live like family? Eh, I know the lie. There's nothing stopping me. She the feel my swag and I get money. I the try my best to be somebody. Cause I'm living life. She's girl, they make me higher, higher. I the feel this baby. You know go believe this girl not die, die. If you see this baby, tell I'm saying she must drop my money.